0: Hello and welcome to Close Reads on the Cersei Institute Podcast Network. I'm David Kern, and as always on Close Reads, I am joined by two snivellers after the ineffable Angelina Stanford and Tim McIntosh.
1: ineffable.
2: <laughs> That's the best thing I've ever been called today.
0: <laughs> um. So. <laughs> David, do we have
1: a special guest? Uh,
0: we, I was, uh, we do. We have a special so guest special. today. special. Another, another sniveller After the ineffable, we are joined by Graham Pittman. Graham, welcome to the show. Thank you. So,
3: my, I think my voice cracks on the very first words. <laughs> Aww. We're, we're
2: was, off. We're off to the races. That was the best <laughs> confident opener I've ever heard. Hello. <laughs> uh,
3: well, it was good to be here.
0: Uh, and I. Graham,
1: brief appearance.
0: Graham and I share a mutual enthusiasm for this particular story. We are here as all as as we have been in recent weeks to discuss Flannery O'Connor's collection, "Everything That Rises Must Converge." This episode is concerning the enduring chill. Graham, what I've been asking everybody when they come onto the sh- you know come onto a, a Flannery O'Connor show, I asked um, Tim this, mm-hmm. Angelina this, and then yesterday I asked Ralph Wood this. But what's where what was your first experience with Flannery O'Connor?
3: Before I answer that, I just need to let Tim know that this is more of an audition for me.
1: <laughs> oh, oh.
3: To play the role of Tim in season three. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna so shake this, things up, we're gonna recast. Yeah, just be on your guard.
1: I will. I'm watching over my shoulder.
3: Okay.
0: Tim, I gotta be a little honest about this. Yeah. We're looking for cheaper options. Yeah. Of course. <laughs> yeah. No,
2: market market he's, drives
0: value, you guys. He's
3: market dragging the whole value.
2: show's budget down.
3: <laughs> I I I get paid in literal peanuts and I love
0: it.
2: <laughs> Tim that peanut allergy holding you back as usual. <laughs> and yeah,
0: and Tim, right. I gotta say, um it's it's a lot cheaper to just buy him peanuts than to pay you nothing and deal with you so
1: yes right right and that's that's the nature of being a diva
0: have
3: (laughs) risen
1: to the occasion say that again as
3: (laughs) evidence as evidence by my voice cracking i am very nervous to be here with such high celebrities (laughs) as tim and angelina who are probably getting recognized on the streets I, I I might even recognize you on the street.
1: Wait, hold on, hold on. Did I tell you guys the story about when I went to the Circe conference two years ago, and I was having a conversation with someone, kind of like, you know, the the pre conference, you know, cheese and cracker event? And I'm having a conversation when you with someone. Sweated a lot. What's that? Is this when you sweated an in- inordinate amount? I, I think it might have even. I think it was that
2: event. Oh, which time would that be?
1: <laughs> yeah, right. We need to be. We need to clarify that a little bit more. So I'm in there. It's and called being woman, alive. This woman turns and she faces me and she's listening to me and she says, hello, Tim McIntosh. And I did not recognize her. And I thought, oh, this is someone who I have met before. I've clearly forgotten her face. I'm a little bit embarrassed that I just have no recollection of this person. And I said, I'm sorry. I, I, I don't remember meeting you before. And she said, we've never met before. I just know your voice. And I said, oh my gosh, yeah, that's a thing. When you do close reads, when you do a podcast, this is the sort of thing that happens. People will recognize your voice.
0: I get this at homeschool conventions. People will come up randomly. Like I remember one, a couple of years ago when we had just started doing this and the podcast was kind of kicking, you know, kind of growing. We were doing shows, but they were kind of not this, they hadn't been where they are now anyway. And I'm talking to someone trying to describe Lost Tools or something, and someone is walking by, and she stops, and she turns and looks at me, and she goes, you do that podcast. And then she just kept walking.
1: Oh, my gosh. That's so funny. So that's now great. I get that.
0: I get that. And, you know, I I never thought of myself as someone who has a voice for radio. So, you know. it's Because you, know, you, because it you have the stunning good
1: looks for television. I mean, I didn't say it. Would I, you like yeah. me to-
3: would you like me to answer your question
1: <laughs> no i do i do this is the way it goes great yeah, you, need to Graham, to you just
2: gotta ride that wave baby yeah you ride
1: the wave but please now Graham, is your moment
2: Graham's
0: revealing he doesn't listen to enough of these shows
2: uh yeah really
3: but i have listened to one or two of of these uh particular flannery ones that you guys have done wait and one or two well there's only been three well i don't know how many there's been uh and they are. I'm, I'm sorry, I,
2: I can't. I can't participate in this, Graham. If you have not been End hanging it. on my every I'm trying, word, I'm out. He's
0: trying to compliment <laughs> us. Accept it. And okay. that, that's that's all. I'll you say. you ruined it. You ruined the, the ability of the rest of us to accept a compliment. All right, this is going on.
3: Really I'm a today. southern
2: so, woman. That's what happens.
0: Uh, hey, it, <laughs> Graham. So Flannery O'Connor, your your first experiences. Yeah. Um,
3: so I discovered Flannery O'Connor when I was twenty. Um, uh, And it was this collection, in fact, um, which remains my favorite collection of hers. Um, And I was living, actually with David at the time, in Iowa. um, And it was during the winter. It was freezing. um, So we were cooped up inside, uh, oftentimes up in the attic with a stack of books. um,
0: And (laughs) so... um... It makes it difficult for me to record this with Graham in the same room. It's funny because, like, when Graham and I just hang out, we've known each other for so long that we have, like, shared experiences. And I always want to make, like inside jokes about stuff that are both, like, inappropriate for the show and also just, like, no one would understand.
1: (laughs) I'm so
2: intrigued with this image of the two of you huddled in an attic with a bunch of books. Continue, please. This is fascinating. Was there a skeleton of your mom up there, too? Like, (laughs) just describe it more.
0: (laughs) That you know that is disturbing. Go on. (laughs) So so you've discovered Flannery O'Connor, and your first impression was what? Amazement. Absolute amazement. Um,
3: and she remains one of my favorite authors, top five
1: so what gra your... amazement did you did you feel on first read that you really kind of got her?
3: yes, and then I realized uh in, in subsequent years I did not um and now I'm coming back around to thinking I understand it more again uh-huh. um but but her characters are the things or or the thing in the story that really um I just thought they were incredible. Um, I did not grow up in the deep South. I did not relate to a lot of her imagery, but in such a, sh- a sparse, short story, she reveals so much of that world and makes it so real. Um, and the characters are so real. Um, yeah, I thought it was incredible. Did they seem
1: outlandish, Graham? Because no, no, no because
3: no, I don't think so. And maybe you guys have touched on this before, but I think her characters, um, you see yourself in in almost every single character in some way Mm -hmm. in a Flannery story. It's each character holds up a a mirror um, and you see the good and the bad in yourself while you're reading. And being at an impressionable age, I would consider uh, 20 years old. Um, these stories, I would say most of them had an impact on my life that actually changed me in some way. At at that time, um, specifically this one, and the first one, which is kind of like a sister story to it, the, uh, the everything that rises must converge. So it's um, interesting
0: that you should say that because the, the the discussion I had with Ralph Wood, which is not currently live when we're recording this on Friday, but by Monday, you know, people, many listeners will have have uh, listened to it already. But in that, he talks about how Flannery O'Connor, when he was 20, he was at college, and she came to speak at the college that he was he was going wow. to. <laughs> this little East Texas uh, college, he had a professor there who was Catholic who invited her out, and when he first started reading her, you know, he felt like something was had changed him, and so he talks a little bit about that at the beginning of the show. But um, one of the reasons I thought... You know, Graham heard we were doing the enduring chill, and he's like, "Oh, I want to, I want to be involved in that conversation." And I knew that we had a mutual appreciation for it. But mm-hmm. one of the reasons that I thought that was a good idea is because it almost can help us reset the, the, the our approach to her a little bit. Not that, not like reset the whole show, but it's just good to have that extra perspective when you've been talking yeah. about something for three or four weeks. So, um, before we go any further, I do want to like give you a chance to. Many of our listeners will know who you are, and some won't. So, who are you, and why are You're you talking to me? Yeah, you, Graham. Mm. I'm looking to, looking at you. Oh, yeah. Why? Uh. Why? What? What's your connection to Cersei? For people who don't know, I am the the two people that don't know. I
3: am the creative director at Cersei, so I I I do a lot of promotion and design and photography, uh, working my way up to CEO. Um,
0: <laughs> it's a long journey.
3: Yeah, long journey. I I have I've taken zero steps to get there, but <laughs> there's only one or two people in between us. So. <laughs>
2: Uh, (laughs) we always uh, joke that Macbeth is like I mean that uh, Cersei is like you know Macbeth Scotland like just look out Andrew
3: (laughs) there is so much paranoia in this office (laughs) no I come in I uh, David and I share an office we joke around we listen to music we design cool stuff and then we go home and basically we're, we're the office in in our room in the office is like the the uh, what what would you call it the heartbeat of Cersei the uh, yeah epi- we're the only epi- people that do any work epicenter yeah.
0: Uh, just it's okay. it doesn't matter no one who works here listen to the show
2: oh that's true oh. But i love the epicenter that was that was great yeah graham is graham is the genius behind all of the great images that uh all of you see for the for the Cersei institute and in fact i was joking with him earlier today about i wasn't sure how this podcast was going to work because graham literally talks he communicates in pictures memes and gifs if you text with graham that is what you're you're not going to get words you're going to get pictures <laughs> So this is—I know this is a struggle for you, Graham. You're probably like imagining all the right images for each of the things you want to say.
0: Well, no, he just uses that little thing where it pulls up all the gifts for you, and you can yeah. choose one of twelve.
2: Angelina, all
3: I have to say to that is,
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> that, that was a, good. That's a great that was picture. Really that's good.
0: A, I'm okay, Tim. You—you you were just gonna say something, Tim?
1: Oh, I was just gonna say. I'm really serious about this Circe to me looks like a multi-million dollar organization And it's because they got great designers behind it So, seriously, Circe looks great um, And I think the greatness is probably far the, the look of Circe far outstrips the actual budget Is what I suspect
2: Well, you know, you can do a lot with those uh, Photoshop apps now
0: <laughs> Graham's got
2: all those filters
0: he just... <laughs> No, he just left, he just walked out um, so, Tim, I was not sure where you were going to go with that. You said it outstrips the budget, but I wasn't sure if you were going to say the budget or the talent or something like that.
2: <laughs> I was also not sure where he was going with that. I was holding my breath, like, what is happening? Uh,
0: so, I, landed,
1: I would say I landed golden. Wouldn't you agree?
0: <laughs> yes. So, speaking of talents, let's talk um, the Enduring Chill. Let's talk Asbury Fox. Um, This is my favorite story by Flannery O'Connor and – as much as I love her other stuff, it's probably not close. Um, wow, I, I I love a lot of her work, um, and there's been no one who's been more influential in terms of my own writing, the way I teach, the what my reading. But this particular story, um, I'm not arguing that it is the best of her stories, but it is the one that I think means the most to me. Um, and uh, we have not talked about this, um, before, you know, prior to the show. Sometimes we get a chance to talk about, you know, how we felt about. Different stories, but I would love to hear from you, Angelina and Tim, about how this story strikes you, um, as you know, in comparison to the first three that we that we did. In comparison to everything that rises must converge, Greenleaf, and A View of the Woods. Um, Tim, I'll let you go first, um, and then Angelina will will toss that over to you.
1: I like next to this is probably my favorite. Next to everything that rises must converge. I think it's super, it's really taut and very, very concise in the same way that Everything That Rises Must Converge is. I feel like Greenleaf and A View of the Woods are a little bit, ah, they're a little bit wobbly thematically to me, whereas the other two, they're so concise. They're just like a bullet shot right after what she's going after. Mm Mm-hmm. And I have a theory that I want to talk about later about that. I'll, I'll well, I'll bring it up. After is it, kind of discussed a little bit?
3: Is it whether Asbury and his mother and his sister and the priest are real?
1: <laughs> no. Okay.
2: I'm not sure Georgia is real.
0: I've <laughs> never been there. Huh? Um, if you, if you've been there, you, you, you would know it's real. Um, Angelina, so what? Uh, what? What's your impression? Your what was your first impression? Of well, the story? to be honest, Maybe not your first I, impression, but your, your uh, yeah, impression.
2: yeah. Well, to be honest, I, I hated it because no one died. It was so disappointing. No, I'm joking. <laughs> I'm, joking. I'm joking. Um, <clears throat> Uh it, well, it's just so different in tone from the others, you know, and and doesn't have that, um censor foreboding I mean you know in, in a lot of ways it's a typical Flannery O'Connor story and you've got the same pattern and the same setup and the reversal here of course is that he's, he doesn't die um, spoiler <laughs> <laughs> I feel like that's an appropriate spoiler everyone, everyone people need it they need a little break here um, so yeah I feel like it was just a lot lighter in tone than the others mm-hmm. um, so- I liked it but I don't know that I would say it's, it's a favorite you know I tend toward the dark There's, that's no surprise
0: so, um, two things. One, uh, Dr. Wood mentioned in the show that this was the story that, 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 um, Flannery said she had the hardest time writing, huh. ah, uh, par- particularly the ending. That is because, so interesting. Because she said it was the first, the only story she wrote where God actually appears in the story, mm. which is, really, which is a really interesting way of putting it. Mm. Um, But I also it's interesting that you mentioned there's not the sense of foreboding because I actually kind of I don't know that I would say I disagree with that because I think it might be a matter of semantics. But I actually think that she is in a really genius way um, creating a sense of foreboding in it through like some of these certain little throwaway lines and stuff where um, she's really building up to the end and what it, what you don't get necessarily in this story that you get in other ones where you anticipate a death is you don't know exactly what's going to happen. Yeah. Which I think which I think creates a sense of tension that that is almost um, is is more tense if you will than when you when you pretty much can anticipate that someone's going to die. Because there's really? no sense you're like, wait, is this person gonna die? is he, what's going well, on? Is he really sick? Is he not? But whereas like in Green Life, you know that the show, she was gonna die in a view of the woods. we she kept telling us through the whole story that someone's gonna die.
3: Yeah, and I think I think on my very first reading of this, and maybe maybe listeners um, can relate, I don't know. Um, but I did not I did I thought he was going to die. I thought he was deathly ill. And then when when the reverse happens at the end, you just like, oh, this 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 guy's just a fool. This guy, this guy's just melodramatic. And then when you read it through again, you're like, oh yeah, this this guy's completely melodramatic the whole way through. And the doctor sees that, um, his sister sees that, his long suffering mother is, you know, trying to help him as best she could. But um, hey. I think it's fairly obvious as you read it that that he's just kind of a fool. Another okay. Thing yeah. Good. Because I don't know if it's
2: because I read it before and knew he wasn't going to die. But yeah, I never thought he was going to die as I read the story because I kept thinking he has he has he has attached so much like meaningful significance to his life yeah. with the fact that he's going to die, this artist's death. So it has to be <laughs> denied him.
3: Yes. And 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 as you read it, it or uh, uh, subsequently. It's just hilarious, like the the steps he takes throughout the whole thing. Even even sneaking down the hallway in an Afghan to listen to a conversation that somebody else is having about him <laughs> to try to like see oh what's the significance? What are they talking about me? You know.
2: I will say um, this though, it's it's not predictable. Even though I never felt like he was gonna die, it was a sweet twist that he made himself sick. In his you know that turns out yeah. his mother's <laughs> wisdom had something to it, right? Yeah, yeah.
0: Well, actually. I don't think he made himself sick. I think the two uh, dairy farmers made him sick on purpose. But oh, um,
2: you think they did hey, something too? Oh you yeah, mean,
0: David. They're playing a trick on him. But before we get further, let's um, <laughs> let's let's summarize. Tim, you're our resident summarizer. So for those who may have not read it in a for while, for now, right? Till till is <laughs> over. Can you, in fact, Graham? Would you like to audition for the resident summarizer? No, job? no, no. He's I'm already got
2: a that. gif ready to go. <laughs> yeah,
0: he does. Hey. Tim, yeah, he just showed it to Tim, me. Yeah. You're,
3: Tim, you're a master. It, it's a shrug. You're
0: a master. Go ahead. Tim, why don't you go ahead and summarize for us, just for people who maybe are reading it this time through, but they've read it in the past and sure. you know, maybe just need a quick refresher.
1: So Asbury Fox uh, arrives home on the train as the story begins. He's picked up by his mother and by his sister. Uh, he's deathly ill in his own mind. He's gonna. He's on his way to dying. His mother... Uh, recommends that they bring Dr. Block in to have a look at him, and he asbury Fox keeps repeating this cryptic phrase, What I have dr block can 't heal me of yeah um so he goes upstairs once he gets home and he com he commences to kind of get on with his death he 's shivering he 's ill there 's not much that happens as far as plot. The major plot points happen through a couple of recollections that asbury has while he's in his supposed deathbed he remembers that there are two farm hands two black farm hands that he kind of wants to commune with and experience their life as part of his playwriting venture he goes and he speaks to them they both they all um steal a cigarette together even though asbury's mother has forbidden this and then later they steal a glass of warm milk together, even though this is also something that his mother has forbidden. We find out later that unless you're David, the milk, um, poisoned him and the made him ain't. catch this fever. Well,
0: I'll explain in a minute.
1: Oh yeah. Um, the, mil- the
0: milk is not, I don't think the milk's poisoned. The milk's unpasteurized, but I think that, the the farmhands there are, well, I'll show you
1: in a minute. Okay. Uh, Dr. Block visits a couple times asbury is convinced that he's going to die and he asks for a jesuit priest to come visit him hoping that the jesuit priest will be able to kind of communicate with him with asbury over art because art is asbury's god he is going to um he kind of has a james joyce kind of idea of the role of the art of of art in his life Oh, the yeah, Jesuit he asks the priest, priest to
2: talk about Joyce. Yeah, that's good. And jo- and
1: the priest does not know. Yeah, I never funny. met him. That was that funny. Was yeah, was that was very so funny. funny. What do
2: you think about Joyce? Oh, I've never met him.
1: <laughs> <laughs> um, the Jesuit priest is kind of a big, clumsy oaf who's only concerned with introducing Asbury to God. This is clearly not what Asbury wanted out of the scenario. No, the opposite. The, he wants the opposite. The priest... Goes home. Dr. Block ends up coming back after Asbury has said his goodbyes. He's clearly expecting to die. Block (laughs) comes back. Block says, great news. You're actually going to live. We know what the problem is. It's a fever that can be remedied. And this kind of turn happens with Asbury in which he recognizes that he is going to live despite his death wish – and in living this veneer is stripped away from his view of the world, and he begins it looks like to see his life clearly as the as the story closes
3: his his literal chill gets replaced by a different kind of chill mm-hmm. and 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 I think one of the big plot points um is the letter that he writes to his mom mm
0: mm-hmm.
3: um Detailing how her failures have mm. caused him grief and he he's writing it to give to her so that she'll be hurt uh not only that she'll be hurt he he says that he hopes it'll help 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 her grow or help change her or whatever, but he wants to hurt her right um and this is how this story parallels everything that rises mm-hmm. quite a bit in that you have um a main character who has some sort of uh, he despises his either upbringing home uh in this case it's both both Mm -hmm. mother um in this story i think you don't see like i would describe uh mrs fox as long suffering and you don't really get a huge sense of why he's so angry right right. um, or not or not as much of a sense as in uh everything that rises uh, but but you can tell. I think it mentions a couple times. You see some of the things that kind of irk him.
2: Well, um, she's small, right? She's small. He's cultured.
3: Yeah. This and the is... the only time she erupts at him, it's twice, and it's within the same page. Um, she says something to him icily, I think, and fiercely. And mm. it's when he he says, um, he just keeps get, he just keeps pushing her and pushing her and pushing her, and then finally yeah. she's like, "I'm not going to let you die." You know, that's the only time you see her um, described that way. And it's when she's trying to protect him even more. Mm-hmm. Um, and so like this woman, it seems to be like she obviously has her problems uh, uh, and that that Asbury is very self-righteous about. Um, but she see, she seems like a really nice character,
1: especially um. compared yes. to the mother and everything that rises. Oh,
2: yeah. Or right. Mrs. May, you know, like it, it, very puzzling, all this animosity he has toward her. Yeah.
1: Well, both of those both
0: everything that rises in the enduring chill are seem to be somewhat autobiographical. Oh, yes, they're, I was definitely about, thinking about that. You know, they're about young writers who convinced of their genius head off somewhere to find culture and are forced to come back and rely on their mothers, <clears throat> which of course is the same thing that happened of, of O'Connor. Mm-hmm. The, really the only difference being that O'Connor um, had Real genius, but you i can't help but wonder if somewhere along the way young o'connor um, thinking through or, or or realizing her own prejudices towards her mother, which if you look at her letters and know something about her biography and stuff, she actually had a very real prejudice against her mother she mm-hmm. she didn't you know there were, there were some complications in there they had a very complicated relationship and you and I can't help but wonder if she had a moment like what's in the enduring chill where she realized that like Asbury fox she was going to, to, in the end, have to stay home and be and rely on her mother to care for her. You know, Asbury's illness is going to come and go. He's going to have good days and bad guys, bad days, but he's most likely going to have to rely on her for the duration of her, at least her yeah. life to, you know, there's going to be the days when he's bedridden. um, And, I, you know, against everything that his pride stands for, he's going to have to rely on her to care for him. And so he's going to be tethered to his home. And O'Connor came to value that. Right. And she came to appreciate that. And, and you, I guess you could hope that that's what happens with, with Asbury moving, you know, as he moves forward in his life. Um,
1: Graham, I want to ask Graham a question. Graham, you said that his chill is replaced by another chill. And it made me think of the last line of the entire uh, story, but the Holy ghost emblazoned in ice instead of fire, continued implacable to descend. <laughs> Explain what you mean by another chill replace the chill that he had.
3: Yeah, why don't you go ahead and explain that for me, Tim?
1: I, I don't know. I genuinely well, do you, don't know. Do you mean by the second chill
0: the idea that like when we experience something profound or transcendent, we get that chill in our spine type uh, thing?
3: No, I think no, because I think Flannery O'Connor is getting like she, she says that the dove, or sorry, the the bird um, descends right, like the dove descends mm-hmm. um, in the Gospels.
0: Yeah, that's a good um, so. Connection. So
3: we've got the Holy Ghost coming onto him. And, what, and it says it gives him an enduring chill, right? Uh, he saw that for the rest of the day as frail, racked, but enduring. He would live in the face of a purifying terror. Um, and he mentioned the chill earlier when he goes numb. Um, I
2: actually underlined so, all the places in the story where it talked about the chill. So I'm finding this very fascinating. Well, and it, it says
0: that as this is going on, his legs... His... His, leg, his limbs that had been racked for so many weeks by fever and chill were numb now. The old mm-hmm. life in him was exhausted, and he awaited the coming of new. Mm-hmm. It was then that he felt the beginning of a chill. A chill so peculiar, so light, that it was like a warm ripple across a deeper sea right. of cold. And, his breath came short.
3: And this is indicative. Right, right. It says it's like the Holy Spirit coming upon mm-hmm. him.
2: See, the that Holy issue. Spirit comes down in the waters of baptism, but this is ice, you see? So it's that idea. It's, yeah. it's going to pierce his heart. It's like an icicle. Violent. Know? Violent. Yeah. yeah.
3: yeah. And, and and this, I mean, this is my reading of it um, and has been. And I think um, throughout the story, what's the line, Tim, that he keeps saying? What I have he can't help me with or mm-hmm. you can't yeah. help me with? Mm-hmm. And that's, that's like a multi-level you know, he's speaking on different levels there, right? So it's true. It's also false. It's, it's false and true at the same time. Because oh yeah, he so did help him. He did, but he couldn't help him uh, through his spiritual malaise. Um, the only person that seemed to get through to him was the priest, because he left him shocked with his eyes like saucers, mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. a child. And I don't. And it doesn't seem like that's the moment of grace. Mm-mm. It seems like when he gets that, that diagnosis that he doesn't want... For some reason that that is the moment, and I don't I don't know why. I'd love to hear why you guys so, think that's.
0: I don't think this is a story about a moment, though. I think this is because she's giving these hints all throughout that this is about like a longer process, and um, one of the things that is interesting is that he. You remember the letter he writes to his mom that you mentioned, Graham? Mm-hmm. He blames her that he is he's a bad writer because of her. Um, let's look at that real quick. Okay, yeah. If reading it would be painful if reading it would be painful to her, writing it had sometimes been unbearable to him. For in order to face her, he had had to face himself. Mm. I came here to escape the slave's atmosphere of home he had written, to find freedom, to liberate my imagination, to take it like a hawk from its cage and set it whirling off into the widening gyre. Which is this, that's such a stupid reference by him, but it's hilarious. And what did I find? It was incapable of flight. It was some sort of bird you had domesticated, sitting huffy in its pen, refusing to come out. The next words were underscored twice. I have no imagination. I have no talent. I can't create. I have nothing but the desire for these things. Why didn't you kill that too? Woman, why did you pinion me? Um, but the, the interesting thing is, so he blames her for not having imagination, but then he constantly reveals that he has imagination. Um, he could even just in believing that he is sick unto death is is imaginative, right? But then if you look, um, when he first sees the bird in the room, which is just on the opposite page in my volume, um, it talks about, he says when she, she, she leaves him in the room and he says, or I guess the book says when she was gone, he lay for some time staring at the water stains on the gray walls. Descending from the top molding, long icicle shapes had been etched by leaks, and directly over his bed on the ceiling, another leak had made a fierce bird with spread wings. It had an icicle crosswise in its beak, and there were smaller icicles depending uh, depending from its wings and tail. It had been there since his childhood, and had always irritated him, and sometimes had frightened him. He had often had the illusion that it was in motion, and about to descend mysteriously and set the icicle on his head. He closed his eyes and thought, I won't have to look at it for many more days, and presently he went to sleep. And so like he does have imagination and it's so whatever, however she raised him and whatever, you know, religious circumstances, whatever conversations they had, however he was raised, he was raised with some, some seed of imagination. And it's that seed of imagination that allows him to in the end, um, see that as the Holy spirit, right? Because when he sees that for the first, as he's growing up, he sees it as this bird on the ceiling. And it's that, that's, that's part of a longer process. And throughout the story, she constantly is referring to different little moments that play into his change. So you get, you get that the line, there was a continuous thud in the back of Asbury's head as if his heart had got trapped in it and was fighting to get out. And then a couple lines later is the part where the doctor takes the blood. And as he's taking his blood, He's humming a hymn. So it says he's humming a hymn as he pressed the needle in. Asbury lay with a rigid, outraged stare while the privacy of his blood was invaded by this idiot. It's a great line. (laughs) Slowly, Lord, but sure, Block sang in a murmuring voice, Oh, slowly, Lord, but sure. And so, like, I think that's indicating that there's this, that this sometimes it's not that one moment that changes you entirely. It's a slow process, and, and God works on us slowly, slowly, slowly. And then later on, um, it says, um talks about the there's there's one line in particular I, there's a lot of different ones i could reference but um it says you know he has a talk conversation with the priest which i'm going to hold off on talking about um but then he says later on he says he had a ter- sudden terrible foreboding that the fate awaiting him was going to be more shattering than any he could have reckoned on um, it says he knew that there would be no significant experience before he died, which of course is you know flips around. But then the last line, but the Holy Ghost emblazoned on ice instead of fire, which you referenced Angelina, continued implacable to descend, and so like that, le- even just using the word continued there. Implies that this is, there's a longer process thing going on. So I think unlike a lot of her other stories, this is the long way of saying I think that it's, it's a longer process thing that's going on. I
2: totally it's, agree. One of the things that I wrote in the margin was he's always on the cusp of seeing throughout yeah. the whole story. I mean, the first paragraph shows you that, right? Because he gets off the, yeah. off the train and he, he has this feeling that yeah. there's more to this right. small town, right? But he can't quite get it.
1: Asbury well, felt a, that he
2: was about to witness a majestic transformation that the flat of roofs might at any moment turn into the mounting turrets of some exotic temple for a god he didn't know the illusion lasted exactly only a moment happened. yeah
0: it's that's that's your foreshadowing right there it's like instead yes. of foreshadowing a death it's foreshadowing a birth
2: yes yes uh, yes and there and were it does I, I, the I saw temple. the same thing picks up all those little all those little moments all through the thing that he's almost there he's almost there but you know, all of, so all of Flannery O'Connor's stories work on the construct of the reversal. But in this story it's it's a different sort of reversal, right? So it in everything that rises must converge, you think it's the mom that's gonna have the you know, the moment of grace and it's really it's really right. Julian and he flips it around. But here what's interesting is the only time the phrase the enduring chill is used is when Asbury says it about his mother. He is sure. he writes that letter hoping to give her the enduring chill. But but the you know, the reversal here then is that it's him.
0: He's the one. Which I can see how Connor writing and chuckling and being like, Oh, they're all gonna think that's the enduring chill.
2: (laughs) Right, yeah, yeah. Like
0: writerly humor.
2: I also thought it was... Okay, I think this is part of the reason why it seemed like a different sort of tone to me in this story. Because when it started off, and maybe this is just because of my background in Victorian literature, but it felt like a Victorian story to me. This whole, like, you just catch a chill one day and the next day you're dying, you know. And he comes into town like he's Keats, right? Like, this yeah. tragic loss of talent. He's going to die young. And he, he that melodramatic thing, I burned all my poems, You know, he's just i just- I just kept thinking of Keats like he's coming to town like he's Keats and he's, he's so dropping
0: Yeats references when they yes. don't belong
2: yeah. yes, yes,
3: Kafka
0: <laughs> yeah yeah. oh yeah, yeah,
3: he is completely absorbed in his melodrama um. And I th- Which and is
0: imaginative in and of itself, and then it's about reshape- yeah. it's about reshaping that imagination. But I
3: I think I identified with him when I first read it yeah. As, yeah. as a young person because I think you also like once you you know get out of high school or college or whatever, the, you're you're away from your parents and you start feeling like a little sick or something. You're like, oh, what is this? Am I dying? You know, it's like very melodramatic. You're very important at that age, so each each ailment you get is very important. Um, And then so, like, I'm reading this story, kind of identifying with this guy, and then you realize he's just a fool, uh, and then you realize you have to, like, think about that with yourself, Um, (laughs) uh, especially if you're identifying with him.
2: But there's this irony, right, that even in his foolishness, even with all his bad motivations, he actually is longing for the right things, right? So he, he, yes. when he's ill, he longs for home. He hates home, but he longs for home, right? And, yeah, yeah. and even though his dismissal of the doctor is because he feels superior, right, and his uh-huh. wanting to talk to a Jesuit priest is to, again, assert his superiority, that's a right longing. The doctor can't help me. I need a priest.
3: Right. And his even his search for meaning there. Like, there needs to be meaning in this death, and he keeps getting thwarted, um, which is hilarious. Each time it's hilarious to me. Um, <laughs> yeah, and, 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 and
2: that contrasted with those scenes at the university, right, where he goes to this, everything's yeah. an illusion, pain's an illusion, there is no death in but he want, he doesn't want it to be an illusion. He wants it to be real and meaningful.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: So let's... Let's talk then about the passage with the priest, because I think this plays into that. Um, let's let's just read it. I think there's two passages that we should read um, in completion. Let's see here.
3: Mine, mine starts on page 105. Yeah. And I love how when the priest comes, he rearranges the chairs for him.
0: He makes it into a cell. He
3: makes, yeah, he makes no,
2: it. Yeah. No, that was like, again, <laughs> no. very ima-
0: imagination.
2: Like, like Tom Sawyer, right? Like he's going to yeah, die yeah. the right way. <laughs> yeah.
0: He has imagination. He's just immature. Mm-hmm. Um. So let's see, T- uh, Tim, why don't yeah. you play Asbury? Okay. Graham, why don't you be the the uh, priest? Oh dear. Um, I will read the narrator, and then Angelina, if the mother's in it, you read that. How about that?
2: All right, this is typecasting, but I'll roll with it. I don't think she's in it. Oh, I see what you're doing, David. Yeah, no, no okay, yeah.
0: yeah. Yeah. Uh, So let's start with Mrs. Fox stiffened and did not budge. Yeah, I think you might be out of a, some lines here, Angelina. That's
2: okay. Uh, I can handle it. <laughs> Mrs. Fox stiffened and did not budge.
1: I'd like to talk to Father Flynn alone, Asbury said, feeling suddenly that he had an ally although he did not expect it he had not expected a priest like this one. His mother gave him a disgusted look and left the room. He knew she would go no further than just outside the door. It's nice to have you to come, Asbury said. This place is incredibly dreary. There's no one here of an intelligent person can there's no one here an intelligent person can talk to. I wonder what you think of Joyce, father <laughs> The priest lifted his chair and pushed farther.
3: You'll have to shout, he said, blind in one eye and deaf in one ear.
1: What do you think of Joyce? Asbury said louder.
3: Joyce? Joyce who? asked the priest. James!
1: Joyce! Asbury said and laughed. The the priest brushed his huge hand in the air as if he were bothered by gnats.
3: I haven't met him, he said. Now, do you say your morning and night prayers?
1: Asbury appeared confused. Joyce was a great writer, he murmured. Oh, shoot. Joyce was a great writer. <laughs> stage directions! stage directions, yeah, Tim! Right.
0: <laughs> Didn't even before the line. Yeah.
3: Oh, you don't, eh? said the priest. Well, you'll never learn to be good unless you pray regularly. You cannot love Jesus unless you speak to him.
1: The myth of the dying God has always fascinated me, Asbury shouted, but the priest did not appear to catch it.
3: Do you have trouble with purity? He demanded, and as Asbury paled, he went on without waiting for an answer. We all do, but you must pray to the Holy Ghost for it. Mind, heart, and body. Nothing is overcome without prayer. Pray with your family. Do you pray with your family?
1: God forbid, Asbury murmured. My mother doesn't have time to pray and my sister is an atheist, he shouted.
3: "A shame, said the priest. Then you must pray for them.
1: The artist prays by creating, Asbury ventured.
3: Not enough, snapped the priest. If you do not pray daily, you are neglecting your immortal soul. Do you know your catechism? Certainly not, Asbury muttered. Who made you?
1: Different people believe different things about that, Asbury said.
3: God made you. Who is God?
1: God is an idea created by man, Asbury said, feeling that he was getting into his stride that the two could play at this.
3: God is a spirit infinitely perfect, the priest said. You are a very ignorant boy. Why did God make you?
1: (laughs) God didn't.
3: God made you to know him, to love him, to serve him in this world, and to be happy with him in the next, the old priest said in a battering voice. If you don't apply yourself to your catechism, how do you expect to know how to save your immortal soul?
1: Asbury saw that he had made a mistake and that it was time to get rid of the old fool. Listen, he said, I'm not a Roman.
3: A poor excuse for not (laughs) saying your
1: prayers. (laughs) Asbury slumped slightly in the bed. "'I'm dying,' he shouted.
3: "'But you're not dead yet,' said the priest. "'And how do you expect to meet God face-to-face "'when you've never spoken to him? "'How do you expect to get what you don't ask for? "'God does not send the Holy Ghost "'to those who do not ask for him. "'Ask him to send the Holy Ghost.'"
1: "'The Holy Ghost,' Asbury said.
3: "'Are you so ignorant you've never heard of the Holy Ghost?'
1: Certainly I've heard of the Holy Ghost Asbury said furiously And the Holy Ghost is the last thing I'm looking for
3: And he may be the last thing you get (laughs) Mm -hmm.
1: So do y'all think
2: this this means that he asked?
0: Well let's talk about that in a second Perhaps Go ahead let's talk about it now
3: You're not talking about right then right?
2: No but I mean if he gets the Holy Spirit at the end Does that mean that at some point he asked for it? I don't know
3: perhaps
2: it's just striking me that well, I mean O'Connor obviously put that in there intentionally
0: yeah I think that um, I wondered about the scene with the blood if that could play into it I've I've been trying to detect if there's any moments when the priest in some way contacts him in a way that there's like something like that could have happened there well it says um, he
3: he feels like he's pinned to the bed after a little while
2: well, I mean, yeah, if we keep reading, of course, he says the Holy Ghost will not come until you see yourself as you are, a lazy, ignorant, conceited youth. So maybe that's the moment. Maybe he does come to realize that.
0: Hmm. Hey, okay, so he leaves the room. If we go ahead a little bit.
2: And then the priest chastises the mother. You've failed him.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay, mm-hmm. hey, let's let's jump ahead a little bit to the next morning. So it's like two paragraphs ahead. There, yeah, there is that thing about the failure so and the mother, but then it says the next morning he was so weak that she made up her mind he must go to the hospital. I'm not going to any hospital, he kept repeating, turning his thudding head from side to side as if he wanted to work it loose from his body. I'm not going to any hospital as long as I'm conscious. He was thinking bitterly that once he lost consciousness, she could drag him off to the hospital and fill him full of blood and prolong his misery for days. Um... That's, that's interesting so there's the taking out of the blood the going in of blood that's, that's there's something sacrificial about that You know, we yeah yeah about the reference to the temple early on he was convinced that the end was approaching that it would be today and he was tormented now thinking of his useless life which is kind of true right it ended up kind of being an end he felt as if he were a shell that had to be filled with something but he did not know what so there's like in, there might be an internal moment of questioning here of, of like asking for something here
2: yeah because and he, he needs to be filled with the Holy Ghost right and so right after that he looks yeah. up at the bird
0: Yeah. So, okay. So it says he began to take note of everything in the room as if for the last time. So ostensibly he's doing it because he's just kind of taking it all in before he dies. But there's something more going on. The ridiculous antique furniture, the pattern in the rug, the silly picture his mother had replaced. He even looked at the first fierce bird with the icicle in its beak and felt that it was there for some purpose that he couldn't divine. And then there's this. This is really important. There was something he was searching for. Something that he felt he must have. Some last, significant, culminating experience that he must make for himself before he died. Make for himself out of his own intelligence. He had always relied on himself, and had never been a sniveller after the ineffable. <laughs> and then, jump ahead two paragraphs. So girls Okay, jump ahead one paragraph. As the day wore on, he grew more and more frantic for fear he would die without making some last meaningful experience for himself. And then the next paragraph. The light in the room was beginning to have an odd quality almost as if it were taking on a presence. In a darkened form, it entered and seemed to wait. Outside, it appeared to move no farther than the edge of the faded tree line. And I think this is the real beginning. Like, yeah. there's a bunch of beginnings, and this is where it... Yeah, I of, underline it, it that, too. A, it takes a new... new um, kind of takes a new form. Um, suddenly, he thought of that experience of communion that he'd had in the dairy with the Negroes when they had smoked together. And at once, he began to tremble with excitement. They would smoke together one last time. And then he calls them up and they they talk. But so if he if he's asking, it seems to be happening like maybe it's not he directly asks, but he's longing for something. Right. And he's his imagination and his 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 moral imagination, his spiritual imagination is open to something. You know, he's not a nihilist like Julian. Right. There's something more going on. And he just he's been looking in the wrong places. His pride has gotten in the way. And when the priest talks to him like that and he opens it, his eyes are opened that way. Like that's super. I mean, like she didn't do that on accident that she walks in and he sat up and opened his eyes. Right. And his eyes are wide. Right. Mm-hmm. So his eyes have been opened to something about himself. Graham, you look like you're going to say something.
3: Yeah. So where he says he, he has to have some meaning brought forth from his own intelligence And I think that's where you see... So he thinks the conversation with the workers is going to do it. It doesn't. He thinks bringing the Jesuits is going to do it. It doesn't. Writing the letter to his mother is going to do it. He doesn't get that chance either. And so it's when maybe he gives up and realizes, I can't do this out of my own intelligence, pride, whatever it is, is when you see that ending come. Um, And where he's broken in that, too, his his whole framework or paradigm shift out of... I'm not dying. Um, all Everything I've been trying to do up until this point, it's kind of gone. It just kind of went away um, with that news. And then it's a, you know, that's when the Holy Spirit's coming at the end.
1: I th- yeah. I think the big shift that it seems that happens is Asbury goes from being the purported author of his own experience to being kind of like the subject of reality, if that makes any sense. So he's, he's over and over. Not only does he want to be an author, but he wants to create experiences that will be meaningful for him. And it's so funny because think about the way that the priest barges in the the (laughs) priest just like, (laughs) there's no, um, subtleties of interpretation with the priest. He comes in like a force of nature. Mm-hmm, yeah, absolutely. There's, there's no discussion about what other people believe about what happens after death. The priest just states like this kind of like hurricane force that this is what happens when you die. There's one God. You'll be subject to him. You've got to get your soul straight. And it's so – And it made me think – this is the theory that I mentioned earlier – it made me think that I wonder if O'Connor kind of saw her task as an artist as sort of like the same Aww. task as this bullying You're Jesuit right. priest. Right, there's
2: nothing subtle about him, right?
1: No, there's nothing and, subtle and about him. And he's off
2: putting. He's off putting.
0: And, and he, he is. And Asbury even says, he he's like, I kind of could enjoy this conversation. I can, I, you know, two people could do this. And then right as yeah. he says that, the priest basically takes over the conversation and then asbury tries to respond by saying god didn't and there's the ellipsis and then it says god made you to know him and the priest just bullies him over by saying that line which
1: is right. a really powerful little and i think thing it's really interesting that the only times that we've seen other artists mentioned in her stories in fact these are the only this is the only story that i can recall other novelists being mentioned um it's joyce is one of them and joyce James Joyce, I think, is probably the antithesis of what O'Connor wants from her art. Mm-hmm. Think about like one of those last lines from *The Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man* by James Joyce. I will. It's all about he is going to forge experience inside of himself. Welcome, O Life! I go to encounter the millionth time the reality of experience, and to forge in the smithy of my soul the uncreated conscience of my race. That's, he's going to (laughs) make, he's going to make in his soul the uncreated conscience of his race. That's so the opposite of what O'Connor is about in this story and her other stories. It's not about like um, the imperialistic uh, domestication of experience. It's Asbury kind of like comes to reality when he recognizes that reality is outside of him and impressing itself down on him
0: well and you even see that in how he gets sick right because he thinks he's going down there and he's having this moment of communion and it's like he's playing like julian where he thinks he's showing some goodwill Mm. to the black uh people who work for his mother so do
2: do you think that he thinks he's vengeance on him because he got him in trouble for the tobacco
0: no i well i mean i don't i think they're making fun of him so i think that um
2: because it's the next day that he drinks the milk and gets sick.
0: Um so um
2: I'm well, Sorry, we, yeah, I derailed your thought.
0: It's okay. Um but well, but it's just funny that he thinks, you know, he thinks he's being you know, generous and kind and loving and that he's going to he talks constantly about freedom, right? With the two black people who work for each other, the two black guys and he and he He's, like constantly like doing this is going to free you. You can get you to basically do whatever you want. Um, mm-hmm. And 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 they just I think they just see through it. And they're smarter. They're smarter than that even though they may not see it see it on the surface. And so he thinks he's doing that and then in the end in in acting that way, he it it that's the thing that causes him to get sick.
1: Yeah. And, I want to just say one more thing about the James Joyce reference. Mhm. I think it's so interesting that, that Asbury thinks he's returning home to what he perceives as slavery, right? Mm-hmm. The slavery of this home. And it's so interesting that by juxtaposition, James Joyce thinks that he's going to achieve freedom by leaving home. That's how, that's how The Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man closes. Stephen Daedalus is going to leave home and, and achieve freedom Asbury thinks that by returning home he's entering into slavery again, mm-hmm. but he actually, by entering home, by being bedridden, that's the avenue by which he achieves freedom in the end. It's a complete reversal yeah. of of what James Joyce is about. Well, that's a very well, great, and, great and it's
0: the gospel, though, right? Yes,
2: mm-hmm. I mean
0: that. I mean I don't need to say anything more than that. Let's well, talk. Okay, wait.
2: Before we do ahead, that, though, so one thing I looked for this time as I read it, because of what we talked about in the last story of *You from the Woods*, I looked for the woods references and the trees, and of course they were here. So mm-hmm. when you said, "Oh, I think this paragraph is the turning point," that I had underlined the line because it's about the trees, right? The light in the room was beginning to have an odd quality, almost as if it were taking on a presence. In a darkened form, it entered and seemed to wait. Outside, it appeared to move no farther than the edge of the faded tree line. Several times, she makes that same reference mm. that he's positioned himself where he's looking out to the tree line, and it's like this barrier. But then at the end, it breaks through that barrier. Mm. A blinding red-gold sun moved serenely from under a purple cloud. Below it, the tree line was black against the crimson sky. It formed a brittle wall, standing as if it were the frail defense he had set up in his mind to protect him from what was coming. But it comes anyway.
1: Yeah. So similar to a view from the woods. Mm
2: -hmm. Mm-hmm. The red and the woods and the purple.
1: And the crimson.
3: There's mm-hmm. like four or five colors mentioned right there, and I don't think there's colors mentioned very much in this story. At the beginning, oh, yeah. at the beginning
2: <laughs> there was, but yes, yes, same thing. But,
3: yeah, in his imagination of the town.
0: Hey, uh, aren't aren't red and uh, like the crimson and the purple and all that aren't those the colors of the temple?
2: Well, okay. Funny you should in say that because I literally yeah. just read an essay on this for the Fairy Queen because Duessa is in purple and gold, and so I was reading about it. And um, so purple and gold is, is 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 it's pageantry colors, and it's also associated with the Roman Catholic Church and medieval literature.
0: Okay, I thought my dad had, always, had when he was doing his research on the temple in the Old Testament had also. Like blue, crimson, and and purple. I wouldn't be
2: surprised that or fits scarlet, in with the first are... the first line, right? Where he feels yeah. like he's coming into a temple.
0: of, well, of a course God basically. If O'Connor is associating the temple and the cat and the Roman Catholic Church and all that, that would make sense given her Catholicism, mm-hmm. like, even mm-hmm. if it's just, even if it's very subtle. There, her own experience would draw those comparisons.
2: But nonetheless, I do think it's a religious imagery. The colors, yes.
0: Let's talk about that. Um, the stuff with the guys and the milk and all that um because as you said uh they it happens the next day and he gets them in trouble because the milk smells like smoke because they're not supposed to smoke up there and they do and right before that um it's a, uh she tells him those two are not stupid like so we're getting directly a character is telling us those two are not stupid <laughs> they know how to look out for themselves so that should tell us something as we're going through it right that we need to be aware of that they're going to that they're capable of handling their own business. So the next day, the two cans of milk are returned. She says, "Um, if you were doing it, they were doing it. Don't you think I know those two? Um, And then the next afternoon, do you guys see where that is? Okay. Angelina, why don't you be the narrator? And then um, we've got Randall and Asbury and Morgan. So why don't – I'll just do Asbury and – Graham, you can be Randall and then
1: Timmy would be Morgan. Yeah. Um, it's Angelina, what page is it on? Three
2: sixty-nine in yeah. R. Uh-huh. First full paragraph. The next afternoon.
0: Yes. I'm Randall. Yeah, you're Randall. No, you be you be Morgan. You be Morgan. It doesn't Morgan. matter, Graham. You're Randall and I'll be Asbury. Just for the sake of picking. People. God. And then, so Angelina, you go read, You ahead and read all the narrator stuff.
2: Okay. The next afternoon, when he and Randall were in the milk house pouring the fresh milk into the cans. That's
0: not sufficiently Flannery O'Connor accent, Angelina. Oh, Come man, I'm sorry. <laughs> Step it up.
2: This is going to be. Oh, you can't make me do that. It's going to be terrible. All right,
0: just, just do it yourself. Just do Louisiana.
2: Oh, I can't even do a Louisiana accent right. It'll <laughs> all sound comical. The next afternoon, when he... I'll do it slow, at least like a little southern drawl. The next afternoon, when he and Randall in the milk house, pouring the fresh milk into the cans, he had picked up the jelly glass the Negroes drank out of and, inspired, had poured himself a glass full of the warm milk and drained it down. Randall had stopped pouring and had remained half-bent over the can, watching him.
3: She don't allow that, he said. That's the thing she don't allow.
2: Asbury poured out another glassful and handed it to him.
3: She don't low
0: it,
2: he repeated. Listen, Asbury said hoarsely.
0: The world is changing. There's no reason I shouldn't drink after you or you after me.
3: She don't low none of us to drink none of this milk here.
2: Randall said, I'm sorry, this Canadian yeah, you like tried that? to do the you like that. It's so great!
3: <laughs> oh, man.
2: Randall said. I said Asbury, so, so
3: you're not laughing. With
0: me.
2: <laughs> I'm totally laughing with you. I can't do it either. Uh-huh, Asbury yeah, continued uh-huh. to hold the glass out to him.
0: You took the cigarette. Take he the milk. Said, it's not going to hurt. <laughs> Take the milk. It's not going to hurt my mother to lose two or three glasses of milk a day. We've got to think free if we want to live free.
2: The other one had come up and was standing in the door.
3: Don't want none of that
0: milk.
2: Randall said. Asbury swung around and held the glass out to Morgan.
0: Here, boy, have a drink of this,
2: he said. Morgan stared at him. Then his face took on a decided look of cunning. Oh, oh, okay. All right. (laughs) That's you, Tim. Tim? (gasps) We lost Tim.
0: Oh, we lost lost (laughs) Tim.
2: He was awfully quiet. Okay.
0: Uh, okay. Well, hopefully he'll be back. He got dumped. It says "rad on with me." Oh,
2: now he's back. He's oh, back. He's
0: back.
1: Okay. All right, Wait, Tim. Are his there. I am. See, just in time it for was ju- it was li- <laughs> <laughs> It's my line.
2: That's why we figured out you weren't there. Like, man, he doesn't <laughs> get his cue. This guy's an actor.
0: <laughs> Go ahead and read that part again, Angelina.
2: Asbury swung around and held the glass out to Morgan.
0: That's Here, Asbury's boy, mind. have a drink. Yeah, here, boy, have a drink of this, he said. Oh,
2: sorry. Morgan stared at him, and then his face took on a decided look of cunning.
1: I ain't seen you drink none of it yourself,
2: he said. Asbury despised milk. The first warm glass fold had turned his stomach. He drank half of what he Foreshadowing! Yeah, oh, yeah. Nice. He drank half of what he was holding and handed the rest to the Negro, who took it and gazed down inside the glass as if it contained some great mystery. <laughs>
0: Spiritual foreshadowing.
2: Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) The David Kern annotated edition. Then he (laughs) set it on the floor by the cooler.
0: Don't you like milk?
2: Asbury asked.
1: I liked it, but I ain't drinking none of that. Why? She don't allow it.
2: Morgan said.
1: My God.
2: Asbury exploded.
1: She,
0: she, she.
2: He had tried the same thing the next day, and the next, and the next, but he could not get them to drink the milk.
0: He drank so much milk.
2: (laughs) A few afternoons later, when he was standing outside the milk house about to go in, he heard Morgan ask,
1: How come you let him drink milk, that milk, every day? How come you let him drink that milk every day?
2: What he do is
3: him, Randall said. What I do is me.
1: How come he talks so ugly about his ma?
3: She ain't whoop him enough when he was little. <laughs>
2: that's so great. That's all right. so great.
0: All right. So first of all, both these conversations we've read, both the one with the priest and the one with Randall and Morgan are really hilarious. And like, they're so like, this is where Flannery O'Connor's sense of humor really comes out. But I, I love, I, I love how packed these conversations are. The little asides, the narrator gives us, there's so much going on here. Um, and that's why I kept stopping and saying, you know, foreshadowing and all that kind of stuff. Um, but, so I really think that what's going on is they know on the one hand, yeah, they're not supposed to be drinking it and they know it. Like they're trying to honor her wishes. Cause they don't, well, at least they don't want to get in trouble. Um, but then I love that. And then, but then they even ask like, why is she, why does he despise his mom so much? And then she says, cause she didn't whip him enough, mm-hmm. which is such a, which, which harkens back to a good man. that's hard to find, right?
2: Mm-hmm.
0: The idea that she had, if she'd had someone to shoot her every day of her life, she would have had, a, she would have, you know, not been the person she was but i think that what's going on is they are smart enough to know you don't shouldn't drink that and so they're like you do whatever you want to do man but we ain't drinking that and then of course it literally turns his stomach right she doesn't use the word churn. I don't think does she. She uses the word turn. Right, it turns his stomach. Which, yeah, it's a, that's a colloquialism for not feeling well or whatever. And maybe he's lactose intolerant, but <laughs> it literally turns like it's a flipping. There's there's that. What's the word that that you've been using into the reversal? There's a reversal, and even in his gut, like his physical gut, there's a reversal. And we've been talking so much about how for O'Connor it's, and 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 even just in, you know this is just Christianity. This is the gospel that. Um, the spiritual world and the physical world are not divided and so when we get a physical turn like that there's something spiritual going on here and in that milk you know which of course is there's something you know nurturing maternal about milk right um, there's something related to a rebirth when, is, when there's a birth the baby drinks milk you know a, the, the calf drinks the milk the oh, baby yeah. goat, whatever and it is at the beginning of the story the mom here.
2: pointed out to him the, the cow with the really full udders and he's disgusted by it
0: yes yeah yeah that's a great that's great i hadn't thought about that but so milk is just a very nurturing infant type thing right and i think so all these things are tied together into this process of his of his of his eyes being opened and ultimately being able to receive the holy spirit it's and in some ways it feels like the way she describes this is more true to how the holy spirit works in our lives than you know you know almost anything any preacher could say right
1: Mm. hmm
0: And despite the fact that she says that you know you have to uh, you can't just pray by writing by creating art, yes, the priest says there is something prayerful about this story i think
3: mm. i i have a I have a quick question um I'm sure you guys have addressed the uh the... probably not <laughs> um Flannery O'Connor's naming her characters
0: We have in a few places like in greenleaf
3: yeah okay it's it seems to be very um particular. And so I wondered if I wondered if you guys had any thoughts on the main character's name in this, Asbury Porter Fox, <laughs> if it if it has any meaning, or if it's just a black hat,
0: that's a black hat.
2: Oh, and a black hat's never a black hat. That is nonsense. <laughs> <laughs> I want to like, fight every time someone says something like that. Like... <laughs> I, I,
0: well, I, let's go. I talked to Ralph Wood about that, and he has some interesting things to say about it, because he both agrees and disagrees with you. It's interesting.
2: Oh, okay.
3: Did you guys read anything into
2: the name? I did. I or thought it was I a Methodist did. reference, just like the West. That's Asian what I thought it was. Schofield thing.
1: Yeah.
3: Okay.
0: Do we know of any preachers? I mean, there's the only thing I could think of with Fox was like the Fox's Book of Martyrs, but I couldn't, couldn't make that connection. No, I don't.
3: It's well, interesting because- I mean, he like, thinks they... he's
2: a martyr. Like Julian, he's a martyr.
0: Huh. Ah, that's interesting.
2: I don't know what and the order his... is, but yeah.
0: Yeah, they give us the middle name. That might be his ostentatiousness. That
3: could be, yeah, because that is very dramatic.
2: Yes, to put his full name. Yeah. I mean, it's basically like, yeah, comma, yeah, Esquire, yeah. you know?
3: <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay, I just, I, I, I couldn't pull anything out of that, and I, I usually assume that she's trying to tell us Oh,
2: definitely.
3: Through those names.
2: De- you know, when so she makes the line about, you should write another Gone with the Wind, I, I couldn't help yeah. but wonder if somebody had told that to Flannery O'Connor.
0: Oh, oh I totally. Wonder. And then she says, put the war in it. It'll put make it the... Yeah,
2: exactly. Like, we need another gone with the wind. Like, like, I can just imagine that this read very autobiographical to me. Like, how many of those conversations did she have with people about, you know, oh, so what's your I book? Actually, what are you writing on?
0: I feel like I read somewhere that she actually talked about that and how, um, I can't remember where now, shoot, but it, about how, um, she was purposefully trying to avoid things like writing about the war and these these those sorts of things because um, they hampered the ability to like people couldn't see past them something like that. Well, she and definitely they, she, doesn't
2: want to stay trapped in you know anti-Bellum nostalgia.
0: You're right. Um. So a quick Google search, there was a preacher in the United Methodist Church in Ireland and. She, um of course she's irish um named francis asbury
2: well in the town where i grew up it was asbury methodist church that's why i made the yeah. connection
1: asbury's kind of the inheritor to john wesley in the methodist that's tradition
2: that's what i
0: thought okay yeah he was one of two first one of the first two bishops of the methodist episcopal church in the united states yeah he spread Methodism in America as sec- as part of the Second Great Awakening, and he founded several schools during his lifetime. Although his own formal was education was limited, his journal is valuable to scholars as a for mm-hmm. account of its frontier for its account of frontier society. Okay. Um, so there's there's got to be something to that for sure.
1: She yeah, if I were if I were to, I were to the bet, best. the significance of the I, I would bet Asbury's the the. Methodist theologian has got to be the namesake for Asbury Fox. I don't know about the Fox part. Fox Fox's Book of Martyrs that makes some sense. It's a Protestant tome against the kind of Russian, the, the Roman oppression of the um, Protestant Revolution. That, that I guess that could work.
0: Okay, so Samuel Porter Jones. Was an American lawyer and businessman from Georgia who became a prominent Methodist revivalist preacher across the southern ah. United States. Huh. Lived from 1847 till 1906. Huh. So Georgian lawyer, businessman, met prominent Methodist in where she lived. Pretty sure she knew that. So that, yeah. this all has to be playing together mm-hmm. here. It's interesting that she, she plays on the Methodists so much.
2: Yes. I mean, Tim, are there just a lot of Methodists in Georgia?
1: There are a lot of Methodists in Georgia. I mean.
0: And, well, there are a lot in the South in general.
1: And Methodism, the relationship between Methodism and the Second Great Awakening is really strong. And I would think, I mean, I don't know, but I would think that Flannery O'Connor would not look upon the Second Great Awakening as sort of like the high point of American religious fervor. It's kind of, it's where things start kind of getting divorced from traditional Christianity Mm -hmm. in the way that... Yeah, revivalism has much more to do with kind of this like whipping up into an emotional state so that one has... Oh, and y'all look, a, a, few, uh, a few lines
2: down, you know, she wants him to go talk to Mr. Bush, the retired Methodist minister.
1: Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah.
0: I I think that as far as the second Great Awakening goes, I think that the Great Awakening, <laughs> um, I, I think that she uh, probably had a complicated relationship with it. Like, uh, she seems to... Um, have some sympathy, like narrative sympathy, for a lot of um, revivalist type,
1: like Mrs. Greenleaf.
0: Yeah, yeah, I think so too. Um, but of course, she also was very active in trying to avoid being directly Catholic. Uh, Greg, I mean, um, Ralph Wood in the interview, he pointed out that her name she was named Mary O'Connor, and she took the Flannery. It was her middle name; it was a family name because she thought that it sounded less Irish Catholic than Mary O'Connor. Ah, and it does. as Ralph Wood. As Ralph Wood said, ma- the name Mary O'Connor for an Irish Catholic is like, that's more Catholic than the Pope. So, um, <laughs> that's what he said to me.
2: Yes, uh, and I, I – w- see, I, uh, there were a few people kind of commenting on the Facebook page in, in, in this sort of same vein, and I have never felt like uh, Flannery O'Connor is proselytizing for the Roman Catholic Church. That her vision is yeah. so much bigger than that. I don't feel like – these stories are not Protestant versus Catholic. This is, you know, Christianity versus modernity.
0: Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, listen. We are at almost an hour and fifteen minutes. Um, some of which we might actually be able to use. Um, <laughs> let's go. Let's get some final thoughts from each of you. Um, Angelina, ladies first. Final thoughts from you.
2: I really liked this story. It, it, it's, so, it, it's good to see that she doesn't get in a rut. You know, she mixes it up, and I like that. And I guess one thing I'm looking at is the line right above what we're talking, right below what we just read a death was coming to him legitimately as a justification and there are there are several stories where she plays on the dual meaning of justification and brings up the theological aspects of that uh, especially mm-hmm. was it in wise blood that it's no man with a good car needs to be justified
0: yeah no no wait is that, is that is wise blood po- or a good man is hard to find
2: no no it's I mean, in one I mean, of her I novels i think it's wise it's blood. one of the novels blood, yeah so
0: someone with that knows more will be able to correct us if we're wrong right. right
2: it's one of the novels for sure um, I think it's wise blood, though. So just yeah, that's another thing we can be on the lookout for, is the dual meaning of theological terms, especially justification.
0: Tim, final thoughts? I mean, John Stockton, Charles Barkley, Michael Jordan, Scotty Pittman.
2: Tim's been every man today.
1: <laughs> uh, for those of you that don't know, I have been every man today. I love this story. You know what? I I get a lot out of our discussions. I usually kind of come into these thinking oh, I really like the story, and I usually walk out thinking, oh, yeah, I really yeah. love that story. Thanks yeah, too, to y'all's commentary. The, the
2: conversations really really help.
0: Well, hopefully our listeners feel somewhat the same, given the, the darkness of these previous stories. The Enduring Chill is a nice change of pace, though, I think.
2: I'm going to just say, thank you if you've hung in there with us.
0: <laughs> There's another really funny one coming hey, up. Revelation um, is a really funny story.
2: I bet, yeah, that's one of my favorites. It is my favorite. Yeah, it is.
0: Let's toss it over to Graham for some final thoughts here. Graham, thanks for joining us. Yeah. I hope we let you have enough airtime. Sure. That's your final thoughts. <laughs>
3: <laughs> you want it? My final. you're doing it. images.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um. <laughs> what do we not talk about that you want to talk about?
3: Um, I I don't know. I. Uh, we I didn't love talk the about story. the sister. Right. Yeah, <laughs> why bother? Um, I did have a qu- <laughs> I did have a question on that actually would this story be any different without the sister in it is there a role for the sister that That's a great question um ma- makes sense in this story or is there a reason the she's only... kind of
0: a foil at nothing else i guess
3: she seems to be dismissing his illness mm-hmm.
0: she does see through that doesn't she totally. yeah
3: i think more than everybody and she's the one that brings him to the revival as a child
2: to get baptized um, right oh. ooh man there it is yeah. again the baptism the water
0: but yeah. she's in it so sparsely
3: that it's it's uh, she does it's just interesting.
0: And of course, we could have talked a little bit more about maybe what Flannery O'Connor believed about baptism and the Holy Ghost. Yeah, but that, that maybe that's the point where it all begins, you know, in, in O'Connor's mind. But this this story,
3: I think, is a masterpiece. Um, like David said, I don't know if it's her best. I, it probably isn't, um, but it, it connects with me. Um, I, I don't even think I can explain why very well. Um, but this one, yeah, I'm glad, I'm glad somebody doesn't get killed in it. Um, so that's a nice change of pace, but all the characters in this story, the three previous you've read, they are all uh, like, you can, you can see the legitimacy in almost every single character's way of thinking. And, and it, even in a story, it'll switch. Um, like if things that Julian thinks about his mother, you're like, this is right, you know, um but he's self-righteous and and he chooses the wrong thing immediately or he's you know they're all like these gray characters in a lot of ways and that's what we are and uh it's it's just kind of a it's just kind of an incredible writing i think yeah just all this all these different shades like yeah she's the she's the real 50 shades of gray flannery (laughs) o'connor
2: (laughs) <laughs> Absolutely, I'm so glad you reminded me that he was baptized. I forgot that. And as you know, we were talking about the Holy Spirit and the gradual process, I was thinking to myself, I wonder if he was baptized as a child, because Flannery O'Connor would have thought that that was the moment when that process would have begun, right? Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I, I think so. I would, yeah, I would, this I would, idea
2: I that you know he can't escape—he can't escape the Holy Ghost because he got it as a child when he was baptized.
0: And it's constantly pursuing, like a bird in motion.
2: Yes, almost. and he and as a child, he he sees it and thinks of it. You know, the duel, the bird, and and the icicles.
0: And and hopefully, and I guess his imagination was open. His his eyes were open bit by bit. His imagination was open, and therefore his heart was open just enough that it didn't take the goring of the bull or whatever. That, that, that right. It's a little more. Ho- it's a little more hopeful. Mm. And I think in that way, maybe maybe what. Maybe why it appeals to you and I, Graham, is because it feels like it could be about the way the Holy Spirit actually works in most of us. Like it feels more true to the way we experience the Holy Spirit working in our lives as opposed to like it's hard to imagine what like getting gored by a bull and getting killed. That's not something we can imagine experiencing to us, experiencing, experiencing personally. You
2: know, and the other thing I thought of as we were talking was he's not he's foolish, but he's not hard hearted. Like we've seen in some mm. of the other characters. He doesn't seem to be resistant to the grace. Like, so he's, he's almost always seeing it, but he can't quite break through. But, but his reasons for not... He
0: thinks he's resistant, but he's not really.
2: Right, but it's not like, it's not like Mrs. May where he's screaming, get out of here, you know? And, but the sister mm. is the atheist. She's the one who's closed herself off. And the baptism to her is a joke, mm. right? It's all a big joke.
0: Mm.
2: She's more resistant mm. to it. And I feel like he's foolish, but he's more open.
0: And as the story ends, the hope is that then, as the priest says, he prays for his mother and his sister. Right that that that, that, that the reversal in his own life allows him to pray for her. And then, clearly, O'Connor believes based on those that, that that there's power in prayer. Right. 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 So, okay. Well, we should wrap up. We got things to do people to people to meet with. You know, set up for the Kindred conference this weekend. Yeah, I got you a guys,
2: in my
3: car. You guys are awesome. Thanks for letting me come on.
2: Oh, thanks, Graham. Uh, that was great. I really enjoyed your. Thanks for coming life. on. I have to do Graham. this
0: again.
3: Yeah. Some year we'll do it again. <laughs> but yeah, I, I've, I've loved listening to you guys when I do. Um, and I've loved the Facebook group. That's awesome. The discussion on there has been fantastic. I love the disagreements, the discussion, uh, the camaraderie almost of it all. So mm. it's a, uh, it's fun that you guys are active in that too.
0: Yeah. So speaking of which, if you have not, if you're listening and you have not joined the Facebook group, head over to Facebook, search the close reads, and you should be able to find that pretty easily and then uh, we have some Close Reads mugs out there there are a few left if you want to order oh those are the Um, best I'm so excited those will be those that we've ordered those those will be in then we'll get them out to you guys Um, please remember to subscribe via iTunes, Stitcher wherever you access podcasts Um, we have the Close Reads feed itself please do subscribe to that in the long long run we may be splitting that off exclusively so that it's really the only place you can get it we're debating that Um, there's some pros and cons of that so Um, and then of course if you want to subscribe to the network if you haven't yet Please do that as well. Um, and with that, let's say goodbye for Graham Pittman, for Angelina Stanford, for Tim McIntosh, and for all of us here at Circe. I'm David Curran saying farewell on Close Reads on the Circe Institute Podcast Network. Talk to you next time.